Hello everyone and welcome to Rural Spark. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. A listener in the States contacted us recently to suggest we take a look at the education gap between rural and urban students. In particular, the challenge of getting more rural students into and graduating from college and university. There's a concerted effort taking place in recent years to bring people together across the United States to tackle this problem, so we decided to take a closer look. Today, we have two guests. Dreema Gentry is executive director of an organization called Partners for Education at Beria College in the Appalachian Mountains of Eastern Kentucky. She leads the accessibility work on her campus and has developed a national network of people focused on rural college access and degree completion. She also hosts a national summit on this issue annually. The Rural Summit will be held in New Hampshire in 2021, and given the proximity to Canada, there are already efforts underway to get Canadian educators, college advisors, and others involved. We were introduced to Dreama by John White, and he's the listener who suggested this important topic. John served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Rural Outreach in the U.S. Department of Education during the Obama administration, and he traveled to 42 states to discuss and learn about the needs of rural schools and colleges. We're pleased to have both John and Dreema with us today on the podcast. Hello, John and Dreema, and welcome to Rural Spark. Hello, thanks for having us. Um, John, I, I thank you, of course, for suggesting this topic to us. It's very important, and as we know, there's a lot of similarities to the challenges we're having with rural communities in Canada in a wide variety of areas, from uh, you know recruiting doctors to the digital divide, and, and of course, education. And I understand, of course, that things are happening in the States with folks like you and Dreema, and so we wanted to delve into that a little bit, and uh, we can... Uh, you know, follow up on this story, of course, and look at some more of the Canadian context. John, can you tell me in general about the rural-urban divide in the U.S. when we talk about students getting into post-secondary education and, and graduating from college and university? I'm sure you gained many insights in that area from your previous role with the rural outreach at the U.S. Department of Education. Sure. So, so thanks for having us for this conversation. There really is a stark divide between uh, rural schools and communities and other schools that are in urban or suburban areas in our country and I also believe in Canada. So in the States, as you look across the country, poverty increases with distance. So the further you are away from an urban center or or cluster, you know, the poverty increases uh, dramatically and so do the lack of resources. So whether it's internet connectivity at home or whether it's healthcare and housing, they're all less available in many rural, remote, and isolated areas. And it becomes a challenge to daily, you know, daily living and also to education. S- students can't learn if they can't eat or if they're worried about where they're going to sleep at night. And so it does become a huge challenge. It also becomes a situation where they may not see a connection between education and their futures. And that sort of play at, plays out statistically because rural students ages 18 to 29 are the least likely to enroll in college and the most unlikely to earn a degree in the states. A lot of work has been done, particularly recently, to try and address that issue. And I'm glad you, uh, you invited Dreema Gentry to join us from Berea College because she really has pulled together a coalition of people who are trying to share strategies and think through how do we get more, how can we help rural students engage in college? And when we say college, 
we mean everything from right. community and technical school to college and university, the military. How can we give them the resources they need to, to pursue their dreams? Right. And I'm really keen to take a look at what's happening, Dream Ed, at with you and your team at Beria College. Can you just give us, a, so for some context for that discussion, can you just give us a little bit of the history of the college and, and let us know what it's about? Sure, sure. Um, Berea College is located in Kentucky at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, and we serve Appalachian Kentucky, southeastern Kentucky, and our work as a college started in the late 1800s when we were formed 10 years before the Civil War to ensure that blacks and whites, men and women, had the opportunity to receive an education. So that was 10 years before the Civil War, and it was extremely radical work. And I think Berea College today is still continuing that radical work. We have 16 undergraduate students here on our campus. All of our students uh, are extremely low income with high academic promise and highly academically skilled. They pay no tuition. So they receive their four years of education here tuition free, but they all work and serve on campus and they're part of our community. And so work of Berea and a piece of that radical work is realizing we're located here in the Appalachian region and it's our responsibility to help all kids, all community members and families in this region. And education, it's what we do. And so my work here through Partners for Education is helping and partnering with local school districts, community organizations, families and young people to ensure that all young people in Appalachia do have that opportunity to access a post-secondary education. Right. And, and what is the student enrollment there in, in total at the college? So here at Berea, we have 1,600 undergraduate students, and about 10% of those students are international students, 25% are African-American students, and the majority of our students do come from central Appalachia and the Appalachian region. Okay, and what does, if we look at that region, the Appalachia region, what, how would you describe what the rural-urban divide is? And well, I guess we're talking about mostly a an, uh, an rural area. Are there some statistics for that area, or maybe we talk about the, the U.S. in general? I know, John, you had mentioned some of those before, but how big of a problem is this, this rural gap? So when we think about Appalachia and Kentucky and um, it's an area that is geographically isolated, it's uh, mountainous terrain where the extraction economy of coal was really the economy. And about 15 years ago, that economy started crashing. So you started to see waves of unemployment and all the things that come along with unemployment impacting Appalachia and Kentucky. It's a place, like John was mentioning, geographically isolated. Many of our students are on a school bus an hour getting to school and an hour getting home from school. Mm -hmm broadband and connectivity is very limited. I was just in the region this week and it was more, more often I did not have cell coverage than I did. So you have young people and families uh, growing up in a place that they've been for generations. And I have to say too that this, this region, and I'm from this region, uh, strong people, strong families who have a real strong sense of place and community, but they're really dealing with debilitating poverty, very little economic opportunity. And we also have had an epidemic of opioids and other drugs and substances impact the region over the last 12 to 15 years. And in recent years, Jimmy, you've been bringing together people in other parts of rural America who are trying to fight similar battles that you're fighting there at the college. 
Do you find that Appalachia has its own unique, you know, uh, social and, and cultural and economic landscape that you're, you're working within? Are the similarities enough in different parts of rural America that you can come together with like-minded people and address those challenges? Or are there serious regional differences that make that uh, challenging? So I think we realized that, you know, with the 2016 presidential election here in the States, folks were starting to think about rural America and thinking that that rural America, they were not seeing the assets and the bright spots in rural America Mm -hmm. and the capacity that was already there. So we started reaching out to our counterparts across the country that work in similar regions to say, hey, what are the similarities? What are the bright spots? How are we all working for the educational success of our students? So what we find, if you, if you think of the states, you've got four regions that are like my Appalachian region. You've got the Delta, which is in Mississippi. You've got the Native American lands throughout the West, and you have the Colonias along the border with Mexico. Those four regions have this similar deep, deep generational poverty and other issues that are very similar to those in Appalachia. Right. Have other rural places across the country that do not have those significant problems to the impact we have. We actually have some rural areas of this country that economically are flourishing. But what we did realize, our first uh, summit, our first Rural College Access and Success Summit, we had close to 300 people in the room from 25 states. Mm. We realized is with people in the room, you know, I had a participant tell me it was the first time they were sitting in a room and they didn't have to spend 10 minutes explaining rural context before the work could start. Right. Rural context, traffic isolation, the lack of services, and even the strong commitment to place is similar across the country. And I understand that this conference, this World Summit, is coming to New Hampshire next year, and there's already an interest in reaching out to Canadians to maybe get involved in that discussion. Yes. So for 2020, we're actually in Scottsdale, Arizona. So April of 2020, we'll be in Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, right, right. April of 2021, we are actually going to New Hampshire. And, you know, the folks that we're working there in New Hampshire, it's the College and University Council for the state. They already have some strong relationships with the Canadian colleges and universities that serve some of their northern New Hampshire students. So we'd love to start engaging practitioners from Canada, both this year, this next year when we're in Scottsdale, but definitely when we're in New Hampshire. Because my gut tells me that you're probably seeing in your country the same type of geographic isolation, rural students committed to place, the lack of resources. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of our access and success bright spots here in the States would, would be things you all could do, but you all are probably doing some things we need to learn from here in the States. Yeah, I think there's probably lots of success stories and strategies, tools and techniques that we can share on both sides. And of course, Canada is a huge country. The vast majority of the population lives very close to the American border. And then we have this, you know, a very large land mass where communities, small communities are spread out through, throughout rural Canada. So, and there is good work being done. And um, we're going to definitely follow up on this discussion with taking a deeper dive at that. And for both of you, I'm wondering about the, you know, you can't talk about higher education really without talking about jobs for those students. We talked a little bit about that dream already, but I'm wondering to what extent in your region, but also maybe across Canada and maybe across the United States, sorry, and maybe John, you can speak to that too. Um, to what extent is the business community re- recognizing this problem and maybe getting on board to try to help be part of the solutions for rural students and building better futures for them? So if we look across the country, in some areas, the business community is doing great work and in other other areas, it's not enough. And it, and it seems as though there might be 
people working in their silos and they just don't connect and, and make those partnerships as they should. I, th I think of a, a trip that I took to Wyoming, Carbon County, Wyoming. It's a vast area where there's a lot of gas and, and oil industry activity going on. And when I made that trip with the U.S. Secretary of Education and the Obama administration, uh, Arnie Duncan, we were in a room and it was a room full of K-12 and higher education leaders, some business people, and they were having a conversation about the skills that students need in rural areas. And, and the, the conversation sort of went along with most of the activity from K-12 and higher ed, not, not hearing much from, from the business community. And at the very end of the conversation, I think the meeting was getting ready to dismiss a gentleman in the back with, you know, with sort of dirty overalls stood up and he said, uh, I've been listening to this conversation for an hour now. And uh, I have to tell you that when you talk about a lack of jobs and a lack of a connection between what we need, he said, I have jobs. I can give a high school graduate an $80,000 a year job, a truck and ask them to go out into the, into the field and write down the measurements and uh, the calculations from our operations and bring it back. But, but they don't have the basic skills to even do that. And here I am offering a good job to a student who needs higher, higher education, higher math skills. And it was just amazing to me that, that, that conversation had never taken place previously. Mm. And you can't imagine how quickly the K-12 and the state education leaders ran to him after yeah. the meeting to talk to him. That conversation should be happening daily, weekly, at least annually, so that we can make those connections to make sure that the business community has people with the skills they need, but also so that higher education can develop new opportunities with businesses in rural areas. Now, the flip to that is there's a great success story in the area of Eastern Kentucky near where DREAMA is. Um, in Eastern Kentucky, uh, there's a cooperative called the Kentucky Valley Educational Cooperative. And there was a, a group of businesses that wanted to use a mountaintop that had been stripped by coal mining. They wanted to do something new there. And they actually wanted to develop sort of a, a landing strip. And uh, the Kentucky Valley Educational Cooperative in the K-12 schools was teaching students how to build, how to design, build, and fly drones. Mm. So drones are being used for everything these days from, uh, you know, Amazon uses them for package delivery. They're used in search and rescue. They're used in photography and real estate. Drones are an emerging technology and career path and I didn't know it but aerospace is one of Kentucky's top industries so the k-12 system talked with the local hazard career and technical college and talked about writing a curriculum and then the business community talked about developing this drone port where businesses could come in and and start new operations, grow their operations, hire local people who have been trained and who have industry certifications to fly and build drones. 
that's, that's something that happened organically and it's in an area that needs new industry. And we need to find ways to sort of incentivize more of this kind of activity where K-12 higher ed and the business community can work together. And now it's time for a mention of our sponsor, ExploreNet. They're fighting to conquer Canada's vast geography and connect rural Canadians to what matters. And they've been doing it since they were founded in Woodstock, New Brunswick more than 15 years ago. So whether you just need a fast, reliable rural internet connection or you're looking for more services like a home phone, ExploreNet can help. Learn more at ExploreNet.com. That's X-P-L-O-R-N-E-T.com. Absolutely. And Dreema, do you find at your college that you're having some success with trying to break down some of those silos that maybe traditionally have existed between business and, and higher education? Yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, and thinking back to what John is saying, you know, the Kentucky Valley Educational Co-op is one of our partners there and they work closely. We work closely with them in that work. One of our theories is, you know, that really collective impact, you know, it's an often too often used term. But if you really look at, the, at that community coming together across sectors, and for us in Kentucky, it's by county because county is what we identify as. Mm-hmm. But they can bring community leaders together across all sectors to really think about this issue of how do we ensure that students are ready for the local workforce or ready for educational success, then communities can come up with the solutions that work. So a big part of our work in Appalachian, Kentucky, and a a piece of the work starting now nationally, is working to help communities set up those collective impact leadership teams that can actually look at their community and determine what needs to happen locally. Just down there yesterday, and uh, we, we launched the same school district that does the, the drone career pathway. We launched yesterday a virtual reality career pathway and the first virtual reality lab in uh, Kentucky that really is going to now add another career pathway through the schools to Hazard Community and Technical College that will enable students to work here in our own community, but work for employers across the nation. So there are some bright spots within the region where you really see the schools working closely with the community and technical colleges that are leading to, especially those STEM type that can be done in Appalachia for employers across the nation. Right. And if we switch from the economic business opportunities and challenges side of things and look at the social and cultural, are there some challenges with communities where higher education has not been a part of their, their narrative over generations? And in particular with families, it might be resistant to seeing their young people pursue degrees where they might uh, go away and never come back and where you know, rural communities are already challenged without migration. How do you address those things, Dreema? So that, what you said is sort of was the, is the pervasive narrative for the region that the parents are not supportive of their, of their kids achieving educationally, you know, what we call is, you know, they're afraid they'll get above their raisings or that they'll leave home. But what we found, and we really dug into the data about 10 years ago and started talking to large numbers of families, is that's not true. That's just a stereotype that may have been true 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I did a survey of I think it was around 15,000 families of sixth and seventh graders in this region of Appalachian, Kentucky. And what we found is 95% of those parents expected their kids to go to college. Wow. We followed up and asked them, do you know what it means to apply to college? Do you know how to finance college? Do you know these things? The parents didn't know. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing and, you know, being out in the region and talking to parents and, and not the parents of, 
that are the school teachers or the parents who have like the college degree, but the parents that are really struggling day to day with deep poverty, they want what's best for their child and they want to help their child succeed. So a lot of our effort is helping those parents to think about what's a rigorous curriculum. You know, how do we get and make sure that my child is academically and socially ready for college? And Helen, we actually start that work early. Right. Programs for home visiting where we go into the house and we're talking with a mama of a two-year-old and talking to her about how she can embed literacy in her interactions with her two-year-old. We're doing work with elementary, with middle, with high school families and young people because you can't wait till those kids get close to high school graduation to start preparing them for college. And so a lot of our work, we call it cradle to career. Mm -hmm. We work with families uh, from the time the children are born through elementary, middle, and high school so that the children are ready for college, but the parents also are ready to support their child in applying for college and figuring out the financing of college. It's really encouraging. You know, I've worked in higher education in Canada for many years, and I've heard a lot about reach-back programs that go into as far back as the elementary school, but I haven't actually encountered them myself, perhaps they're out there, that go back to the toddler age. And I think that's, you know, it's early literacy skills, and, and that's fabulous that you folks are doing that. And, and interesting, like you say, that the families want this for their children. They just need some of the tools and techniques, because if you don't have that multi-generational experience of how you apply to university, how you you know, prepare for university and how you navigate college or university, those are the supports that are needed. And it's excellent to hear that uh, your college is involved in providing them. Yeah. And it's, you know, and as far as, you know, parents, it's hard for parents when their kids go away to college and you think they may not come back. Like my son, I'm here in Kentucky. He's in college in Iowa, 10 hours away. And Mm. and he'll ever come back to Eastern Kentucky to live and work. And there's a sadness to that. But there's also this piece that he's actually found his wings and he will actually thrive. And he understands his roots are here in Kentucky and in Appalachia. And I think this will be always home and where he comes back to. And I think that we, you know, folks that are like me that have went to college and are middle income, you know, that's okay. We understand that. And Mm -hmm. so challenge that we have is working with folks who haven't had that experience of college themselves and helping them to realize that, you know, you have to give the kids the roots and the foundation, but you also give them the wings to fly away and they will come back. And so a lot of our work is around that type of cultural shift and alleviating, recognizing the fear that we all feel, but also alleviating the piece that, you know, it really is giving them the opportunity to thrive. Absolutely. And have either of you had an opportunity to see what's happening in other countries that struggle with the gap for rural higher education and maybe some of the solutions that, you know, might be worth taking a closer look at in other countries? Is that, is that something you've been involved with? So my experience is, is much more limited, I think, probably than John's. The only place that I've worked uh, internationally is we, we have a partnership and we've worked with some folks in in Ireland that have th- are thinking about how do they work with their rural families and their rural students. And and we've had a chance to think with them about similarities in the work, but also the power of mentoring. And so that project is really focused on how do you connect young people starting at the, you know, 10, 12 year old with a mentor in the community that can help guide them when their parents may not have that knowledge to do it. So it's been interesting to watch them do their mentoring program as we're doing something similar and learn from one another. 
Interesting. It's interesting you mentioned Ireland because it happens to be um, next to Canada. The United States and Ireland are the two biggest biggest listener groups of Rural Spark podcast, and we've done we've done some work with uh, professors in Ireland. So uh, that's interesting that that's where you're connected. John, do you have any international um, experience that has given you some uh, insights into other models? Well, I know that, for example, we have a group called the Rural Community College Alliance here in in the U.S., and they have members who are in Canada. And especially right along the border, there's a lot of synergy going back and forth between colleges and schools in Canada and the United States. And I, I think what Dream is trying to do is expand that even further because, as, as I'm sure she knows from Ireland and I, I believe you know from, can, from Canada, some of the challenges are similar, whether it's teacher shortages or, you know, kids coming to school, needing uh needing to be ready for kindergarten, all of those types of things. For sure. And I'm interested now to how I know you've both been dealing with challenges. So I want to talk about optimism and how optimistic are you about the years to come, particularly if we look fairly short term, say we look at the next five years. How optimistic are you that we're going to see some some significant measurable changes in the access and achievement rates for students from rural America getting into and, and succeeding in higher education? So I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm sure Dreama is as well because, you know, rural people are innovative out of necessity. And everywhere I go, I had the pleasure of, of traveling to 42 states in about four and a half years when I worked in the Obama administration. And you would always hear about the challenges, but you would also see people who are coming up with innovative solutions. We just need to, to find more ways as a nation and to do it on a national scale as far as supporting that innovation, replicating it, validating it, and sharing it so that other people don't have to start from scratch. Oh, that makes tons of sense. What about you, Dreema? How how optimistic are you about the years ahead? I'm optimistic. I do think that a part of the challenge in rural America is that rural America is often under-resourced and underfunded. If we think in, in the U.S. of philanthropic investment in communities and places, seven cents on a dollar goes to rural America. And there's often that not that influx of funding that could support these innovative solutions. But what I'm seeing over the last two years is that foundations, corporations, and folks are starting to become more interested in, with this realization that for the United States to thrive, rural America has to thrive. And so I think that, as John says, we're doing stuff, the bright spots at the local grassroots level, but I'm also optimistic because I think at the national level, there's more of an awareness that we have to support rural people and rural places. It's critical. Right. And we're going to take a close look at those two conferences the next two years that you mentioned coming up in Arizona and New Hampshire and see how things go along and hopefully you'll have Canadians engaged. And of course, um, you might find that Canadians uh, are quite happy to go to Arizona next year and they don't have to wait until 2021 for New Hampshire. And um, hopefully we'll see some more of those connections and sharing of the success stories. Thank you both for being on the podcast today. And it's a great, uh, important topic for us to look at and, and let's stay engaged. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye, folks. Bye-bye. And thanks to all of you for joining us this week on Rural Spark. Our team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seabarth. Music is by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.